0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon. Watches his dark materials. This week we are watching season 1, episode 5, The Lost Boy. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or as Arithmetric over on Twitter.
1: And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as LizaNarbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaNarborGold.com or my many shit posts i need the internet taken away from me i've gone too far
0: i'm just talking about my journey to becoming a pokemon master yes different different different, different thing different totally different thing
1: <laughs> this was a, an episode uh, my first watch i was unhappy my second watch i feel better which is like i guess the last few weeks i like get really raged maybe it's because i'm a huge book nerd and i'm just a book snob and the books are great not perfect, but great, and I don't know, I, I get enraged about like some of these details getting changed, but then I remember the next day, it is what it is, and, I don't know, I'm jaded, I watched Game of Thrones, so. Yeah, this
0: is really good, What we're getting all right. Yeah, I know, I have to keep reminding myself that by watching it a second time. <laughs> You're like, oh wait, this is actually really good. Um, Yeah, I really like the episode, except for the part, and we will talk about that. It's something that, of course, that change disgruntled me from the beginning. I was like, you know, it's fine. They're going to land it. I don't know if they stuck the landing. I don't either.
1: And I really thought they were going to land it. Like, I was like, yeah, "Yeah." I gave them so much hope. I was like, I can get over it being Billy Costa. And I mean, let's not knock her out the bushes. This episode was supposed to be emotional payoff for setup of so many things, like the taboo of demon touching and cutting, the adaptive changes to Ma Costa's character, putting Billy in the role of the book character, Tony Macarios. It wasn't necessarily asked to do more than pay off those things. Like that's all we were asking it, right? It was supposed to do that and set up the very end of the season in the next three weeks. I think in the long run, it was a slower beginning with a very hard hitting end. Uh, Some twists we didn't expect unless you were spoiled on Twitter by Jack Thorne. Uh, <laughs> the less than 24 hours <laughs> yeah.
0: episode was released. I was like, oh, okay.
1: Uh, Interesting. Yeah, about the whole, you know, series co-protagonist was introduced. I was like, by... oh, okay, thanks, Jack Thorn. You and I kind of speculated it was going to happen. Yeah, And, and mine might have been joking, but like, I don't know, I think we're on track for finishing season three by episode eight. <laughs>
2: uh, I
1: mean, it's like, you know what, two and a half times the time the length of time that Golden Compass got, so I mean, I mean, yeah, they can do it. The second watch did wonders, though. Like, uh, all these new changes, all these new inventions, they were great. They were fun. Bringing subtle knife plots forward to collapse the timeline is really smart. But some of them I felt were unnecessary, which we'll talk about. Uh, I just feel like the biggest problem with this writing, and I-, I was thinking about citing some other issues with some of the writing I have, like the cursed child. But I was like, no, I'm not that petty. <laughs> it slows down and then it speeds up. There's like a lot of filler to get us through to the big scenes. But a lot of this filler starts to feel like a shower drain full of hair, right? Like we're we're kind of marking through some of this filler to get to these big scenes. There's so much story in this book and it feels a bit rash that there's a lot of let's invent this better scene of what could have happened without even trying to cover the basics. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's just my opinion. Maybe I'm crotchety. Maybe I'm jaded. But I, I don't want that to detract from this episode. I want to get the bitchiness out now, you know, because it is good. I-, I still think it was a good episode. Like you said, this is this is like eating porridge your whole entire life. And suddenly you're introduced to some maple sugar, right? Like, yeah, this is a treat. It's a treat. I love it. Um, it- It's just interesting to see certain adaptive choices come to light. And like you said, I think. It was a swing and almost hit and missed.
0: Yeah, I think some of the pacing that you're saying might be the case. I I don't mind some of the, what you might be referring to as filler scenes. Like I think that those are important for like establishing some of that characterization, but I think that more time and space needed to be allotted to the scenes with Billy. Yeah. And
1: Absolutely. I'm
0: almost like wondering if part of the issue is so a lot of the beginning of the first book right it feels very childlike it not in a bad way like the tone of the golden compass movie for those first few parts i don't think that was necessarily off like there were a lot of things that were off about the movie but maybe the tone of like childish wonder fun whimsical world and book right and you start getting a hint that it isn't quite that with mrs coulter but the scene with Tony Macarios, who is the child who ends up severed in the book, signals a huge tonal shift in the kind mm-hmm. of story that we're telling and reading. And I almost wonder if maybe because of the serious and somber mood of the rest of the series, it's harder to create that sudden like tonal shift
1: mm-hmm. into- Utter darkness.
0: Yeah, into the darkness and like, oh, we're in the north now. And how brutal it is in that way. You kind of have some of that, like, ooh, fun village, but, like, scary village, right, thing going on with uh, when they were in Trollosund. But you know what I'm saying.
1: Some of the big problem we'll get into really does stem from the way it was set up. Uh, My Costa's characterization, I think, suffered for it to be giving... The, the, they wanted it to be this big, sad thing. They wanted a tonal shift, but they wanted this moment to be the big, sad, heart-wrenching, heartstrings being tugged moment they wanted everyone aboard whether you've read the books whether you didn't they wanted ma costa cradling her dead kid's body singing a song they they knew they had this big moment to play up and for me what they did with ma costa's characterization in the beginning kind of and she was just kind of like a clay moldable thing in a way like they just molded her to you cry now in this scene you comfort lyra you do this uh they they kind of wanted us to really care, and it was very hard for me to care. Very hard. Just from that characterization. It just bummed me out.
0: I didn't mind the characterization, but I think you're right that we were supposed to feel the impact of Billy. That was supposed to be rooted in how Ma Costa felt about it, and I think the impact of Tony Macarios is and we'll get into this later, it doesn't matter. Like, it shouldn't have mattered whether or not there was a mother there or not, and Mm
1: -hmm. We need to care about the child, yeah. not the mother. It, it, the What happened there is sad for Ma Costa, and she is a great character to see it through. I like that they're giving us more from her. In fact, I actually really liked her in this episode. Otherwise, this mm-hmm. is probably the first time you'll hear me say that outright. And I like the actress. I think she could do a great job either way. I think she's doing a great job. But the writing for her is just not right for Ma Costa's tone for me. And by making us care about that motherhood, it's like at the hard home when they kill off that wildling woman, Carsey, because she had a moment of weakness where she was sad for the children that were undead in front of her. Um, Mm -hmm. Spoilers, season five. If you haven't watched it, stop now. But (laughs) if you haven't gotten that far, you should just quit. Save yourself a few years of off your life. Um... Yeah, it's one of those things to me. It's like just cheap. It's a cheap way to connect it. They could do better. And it's about the kid. It's about what happens to Tony slash Billy, Mark slash Costa. Um, and I think that's what was missing. We don't understand why it was horrible for him. We understand everyone's horrified for him. But they had so many opportunities in this episode. And it's like our friend Tana, who was on with us in uh, Northern Lights, She said, you know, show, don't tell. They Mm -hmm. have many opportunities to do that, and they did kind of biff it.
0: Yeah, they didn't really show much of that scene, and even, like, we get hints throughout the previous episodes where people will voice aloud, like, it's very painful to be apart from your demon, but they didn't even show it to us, right? They don't have the scene of Lyra and Pan, where Pan's like, I'm going to pull, going towards Yorick, so...
1: Yeah, they didn't do that, exactly, actually. That, that that beginning was very different. That's why it was important yeah. that Pan went and why she sheepishly hung around back and even though it hurt her. And there are things like that that, to me, I think are, like, guiding points. Like, that's not an important point to show, show for, you know, you don't have to make it a huge exposition dump where Pan looks at the camera and says, and then this happened, and then yeah. this happened, and matter does this and I think they're trying to explain it in dialogue a lot and it's not something that uh, they're alone with right like I talked about this last episode Pullman is guilty of this in the books as well he double hands some of this stuff so hard that I'm like yes we know we read about it in this person and this person's chapters Phil let's move on Um, that's what I think they're doing here and it's just that common TV thing of watering it down for your audiences for the common denominator and it just sucks being so smart is what I'm saying
0: (laughs) I don't even know know if it's, like, watered down. It's just, um, I I don't know what it is. Like, it it, it just didn't stick for me. But, yeah. Anyway, part of the way that they reference that this is Billy, right, comes through flashbacks of what happens in previous episodes, you know, the last time, or previous other times on His Direct Materials, with Billy and Roger writing letters. Yeah, Boreal, they show a shot of
1: him showing the pictures of the Perry family to one of his men.
0: Yep, and then you have John Faw's speech and the Egyptians going north. They show Lee and Hester going to Tralisand and meeting Lyra. You also have the Witch's Consul and Armored Bear
1: joining the party. And then the party is moving north from afar. Was that a lightning round? Did we just do a lightning round? Wow, this kind of is a lightning round. Oh my god, we did a lightning round.
0: Ugh. <laughs> we never do those here. <laughs> <sighs> what is that? I don't know if I liked it. Okay. <laughs> So we get a, an opening shot with kind of a voiceover. At first you're like, interesting, a narrator. Then you're like, I know that silly little voice. That's Kaisa. That little nerd. <laughs> I love his voice. I love him. I want to hug Kaisa and Kaisa. Like, have, these um, do not resist to
1: my wings.
0: <laughs> yes, that's exactly what he would do.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh yeah, and also that's Timbu. I could not touch Kaiser. <laughs> you couldn't. You couldn't. It's rude. God, I'm so rude! <laughs> Kaisa is narrating Lyra's prophecy and then says that she's not gonna walk alone. There An is. army stands beside her. <laughs> I was thinking the, what is it? Green Day song, Boulevard oh. of Broken
1: Dreams. She walks alone, she walks a.
0: Uh, Kate Bush sings a song <laughs> that's titled Lyra. <laughs> and there's a boy who's tied to her in this prophecy who's going to help her change everything. And then we get a cut to Will.
1: Dude, and the cinematography is great here. It is. It, it shows him split. It shows her walking alone. She yes. walks alone. Um, And then it shows Will. Uh, I was going to call him Bill. What is that? That is <laughs> actually a
0: nickname for William, so. Yeah, Bill. That's his adult name. Oh god, doctor. Um, Ew.
1: Okay, so it flashes to Will walking, and it like shows this split kind of pathway, like a forked road, and it shows Will upon the road less taken, a lane, pond, a pond across the pond.
0: (laughs) This does in fact take place across the pond. You're right, (laughs) and uh, yeah, I I love the way that they shot that, and then also how you see his reflection in the pond, like it's him in Mm -hmm. another parallel mirror world also it's fucking will perry i know holy shit
2: <laughs>
1: we don't you know, never I'm... seen him like
0: <sighs> here he is i remember i was gonna be really surprised about seeing will and then jack thorn tweeted about it <laughs> <laughs> fucking jack thorn uh, the
1: yeah. worst part was that it was a notification on our twitter and i had to hide it because i was worried you'd see it and I was like, I can't let her be hurt by this, too. And then I was spoiled, and then you got spoiled anyways!
0: <laughs> All of your it's efforts a- were for naught. You can't
1: protect me, Mom. world. I can't protect you. Oh my god, from Mrs. Coulter?
0: Or Mrs. Coulter can't protect Lyra. Were you trying... Uh. Was it... Was this... Never mind. Let's not...
1: <laughs> so Kaiza's voiceover, I really liked. There's this line in the beginning that he says, Which is here, the immortal whispers of those who pass between the worlds. They speak of a child who's destined to bring the end of destiny. Two things first thing the serious thing then i have a joke thing am i allowed the serious thing and the joke thing eliana yes do you gavel am i allowed it Um. (laughs) (laughs) so the witches hear the immortal whispers of those who pass between the worlds in the idea of north season one episode two we talked about the lyrics to the intro music which are latin they roughly translate the first couple lines to they hear immortal whispers begin children and read the omens So the intro is kind of roughly the beginning of the prophecy is what this means to me in a way of words. I thought it was interesting use of language that Kaiza said, witches hear the immortal whispers of those who pass between the worlds. And it translates to they hear immortal whispers, begin child and read the omens.
0: Mm -hmm. I kind of wonder if that's actually directly from the books. I know that they said that the witches had heard the prophecy before in the books, based on whispers that they hear between the worlds, but I don't remember if they use the term immortal whispers or not.
1: I believe that this does come mostly from what the console says in Northern Lights Golden Compass. He talks about the witches talking about her for centuries, and this is while Lyra's off playing with the pine spray, which is arguably the only thing that I wanted that we did not get last episode, was the console and her like running around playing with the the pine sprays. And that's why I thought they were bigger, Because in my mind, she was just, like, trying to ride them and nothing was happening.
0: Also Um, because that's what I would do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And she's, like, playing in the snow and shit. Like, she's, like, out there, I believe. Like, she's just having her blast. She's a kid. Uh, I loved that. I was sad about that, but I still think it was fine. But he says, because they live so close to the place where the veil between worlds is thin, they hear immortal whispers from time to time in the voices of those beings who pass between the worlds. So that is straight up what Kaiza says. But the console says it in the books.
2: Mm,
0: yeah. And so coming back to that scene, I know it was last episode, whatever. But Kaiza here is talking about how, and this is said throughout the books and the prophecy about Lyra also, if she is told what she must do, she will fail. And it's so fascinating because in the scene with the console. We learn in book three, The Amber Spyglass, that Lyra is like, oh, actually, I kind of learned that there was a prophecy about me. I kind of knew. I think this is what I was supposed to do. (laughs) And she still succeeds. So she's all like, I don't play by the rules, whatever. (laughs) I did it. She wasn't told exactly what to do anyway. She just knew she was special. But so like there was no opportunity for that whatsoever in that. In that. Episode or that scene.
1: Yeah, with Lyra and the console and quorum it was just right there and she stood there. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. She's
0: well, like, listen, listen, go play with Pine Branch.
1: <sighs> which is a perfect way to get rid of a kid, as we learned. True. The overture during this scene, A, rocks. I just <laughs> want to put that out there. B, it's like the main theme, but it's different. And I love that. It's just like a play on the overture and regular score. Mm-hmm. But see, I almost heard the song Lyra by Kate Bush. Oh, the Kate reference in it. If you listen to it, put your headphones on later and listen to it. When Will is walking, I like yelled out loud. It just sounds like, and I'm going to hum this for you because the melody is actually similar. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. And to me... It sounds like that song. I don't know. You've got to listen to it. it. It just sounds like sped up version of that melody.
2: I don't know.
0: Like how I feel that there's this one moment in the song in Postwick, which is your hometown in the gala region in Pokemon Sword and Shield, that sounds to me like West Covina. Have you finished the Bells of yet No, I haven't. Okay, let's talk about <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about Tony. <laughs>
1: Tony Costa is taking on more responsibility in this scene. I I noticed that. I thought that was a deliberate choice because obviously since they can't make like a whole funeral come to the screen, then they're being deliberate about the things they do include. Just putting that out there. You know, a whole ratter funeral. Um, I'm not salty, but he's taking on more responsibility. You hear in the background, the Egyptians exchanging, just chatter and and Tony being told to do something and saying he can do something. Uh, as they carry along, and the men tell him, "Tony, do this." So I thought that was interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. Yeah. Also, your boy <laughs> Lee was like just laying in his bl- on his balloon
1: in the cart with it instead of flying it. I love that. And yeah, like, was Lyra helping push him? Was he just <laughs> I hope pushed? So. I kind of fucking love that. Lin Manuel just showed up on this show and just is. He just yeah. is.
0: I think they've been doing a lot of really fun and great characterization for Lee really Scoresby. Like the pickpocketing. Not canon, but also, why not? Yeah, it fits. Especially if he's like, yeah, I'm really into card games and one night balloon through poker. And I'm like, yeah, okay. General rogue things. I get it.
1: He's a scoundrel. I love him.
2: <laughs> a rogue.
0: <laughs> then, we go a little more into back in our world. You have Boreal, Lord Boreal, and the guy who, I don't know, He's looks... Unnamed? Yeah, who looks a little bit like... What's his fucking name? Edward Norton? Yeah, spy, a little bit. Yeah, just a bit. On Mrs. Perry and Will. Leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
2: all, that's all I have. You know,
0: I agree. We got a really great email from Tana Ford, who we already talked about earlier today. And who joined us again for one of the episodes on Northern Lights. I think it was chapters. What was it? 16 through 18 or something like that. The witches. Yeah. The witches. The
2: DNA and... pages.
0: Yes. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And it was one of a... it was a really great episode and Tana's a longtime fan of these books as well and has a podcast called whateverly, but usually it's called Westeros wheneverly, but sometimes they throw in another series in there. Right. And Tana also has a really great mind for visual storytelling as a comic book artist and says this regarding the Perry household. The best stuff will at his mom's house. Think about the choice of scenery here. This house with its vertical lines and many oddly shaped and oddly placed openings, opening to the stairwell to the front entry. Watch Will's mother as she counts the wooden planks, one by one, each plank almost a reflection of the many universes of this world side by side. It soothes her, each plank having a long vertical slice separating it from the next plank, the next universe. Worth noting that this is also the case with the bricks at the earlier in the episode. Then Tana says, And openings everywhere. In this house. Cutouts and missing walls and holes abound. Watch it again, my friends! You will catch glimpses of other rooms, sections of wall or stairwell or kitchen or doorway that you wouldn't normally see in a typical house. The choice of this particular location for Will and his mom seems brilliant to me, and the secrets hidden away deep inside this universe, this house, is also a reflection of Will's arc. God, I love it. I
1: didn't even think about that with the planks. That's brilliant.
0: Yeah, that and, and the construction of Will's house. I, th- I think these are such great insights for yeah, the way that visuals, location can be part of storytelling. I mean, that house is vulnerable.
1: It's basically naked, right? And once you go inside, it's inside out. There's no secrets, but there are. They're just hidden very, very deeply. Uh, it's vulnerable that house is vulnerable when you go inside and look inside and see everything revealed in the walls and the stairs
0: yeah but again like you said there are the secrets hidden different ways that the cutouts work those glimpses that you catch and it it also makes you wonder like this is a nice ass house also like was it something that john perry maybe he was also obsessed with windows and designed his house in that way and was like live live here family on that
1: same note there's something that gets said later when thomas is talking to boreal that we'll talk about probably a little more but he talks about the state of their money and kind of the the amount of planning that john perry had to have done to do that so
0: he stashed money very hard he could afford a good architect like this is a nice house yeah
1: so the intro happens which is of course still a banger Just in case you forgot, uh, this week, what I'm going to appreciate about it is just that beautiful slice between, haha, slice, uh, the knife, which there you go, there's another bit, by the way, that that house is cut out like with a Mm -hmm. knife. Um, The intro, this week, I'm appreciating that Lyra, when she stands there and the knife's in her back, and then you go out to that amber spyglass. um, I I was appreciating before that, there's kind of just these shots of the alethiometer that make you think of the golden compass and then of course the northern lights with all the sparkles Oh and yeah! It, it just like goes bang and then you get the knife and then you get the lens and every time i'm just like oh yeah it's happening it's just so good so i just want to appreciate the intro because we should every week it's just such a banger it's it is. such a good song i've like bought my
0: head I'm into it. I'm like, it's time. It's time, MRFers. Let's watch the show. Yeah. I get excited at the beginning when it's starting, like that moment of like silence. And then it builds, and like, it's like.
2: Yeah, the. Yeah, and then like it goes.
0: And then the little lines, and Daphne Keene appears. Yeah. And then the sparkle, the sparkle, the dust on the
1: alethiometer. And really, I mean.
0: Could Never you gets ask old. For
1: more, also, do you get do you uh, sing along to the the HBO Ah? Uh, the uh... the
2: <laughs> no,
1: I don't. But I can start. Speaking of the intro, I actually haven't mentioned this. I have mentioned it to you, and I meant to say it last week on the podcast. But if you sing the melody of the intro in a choral voice, like like you're singing in a choir in a chorus, mm-hmm. like think of a church choir. It, it it literally sounds like a church hymn, like something you'd hear during mass.
0: That might have been intentional. It probably was. Uh,
1: yeah, it's interesting when I like sing along with it next time you're listening. Just you know, play around, get weird. Okay. Is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> Be weird like I am, because <laughs> you have to understand these things. I keep saying to you, I've thought of before, Eliana. That's the problem. <laughs> Why is that a problem? I mean, in my own spare time, I have sang the whole song melodically, like a choir.
0: I don't think I sing it like that. I do sing it sometimes though, to myself. I'm like, bah, 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 but I do it very differently. I don't. I do go, it regular ah. too. I go bah, 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 and like I'm jamming out. That's what I'm in saying. You need to
1: experiment yeah, while that's you true. do this. You're right. So I have right. been experimenting, is what I'm saying. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes I rock and roll it, GM out, I headbang. But also, sometimes I sing it. In a church choral voice while I'm cooking, hmm. waving spatulas around. You know what I mean?
0: Yes, yes. But you know what else nope. has meaning? The symbol nope. reader. Nope. That's, that was that's that was not a the segue. segue. That's the that segue. Was, that was not a segue. <laughs> no, that's the segue. Um, the symbol reader and John Faw wants to know what meanings the symbol reader can tell him about Bolvangar. He keeps calling it the symbol reader, not a yeah, it is very, very much so, like, capital
1: S. Symbol reader.
0: I like it. I like this this thing of his. John Fah respects nothing.
1: It has not <laughs> earned his respect yet, this symbol yeah.
0: reader. Tell me what the knick says. <laughs> I like it. I think I yeah. would do that if I were him. Lara reads that there are 60 Tartars with rifles and miniguns guarding Bolvangar, and... It also tries to warn her of something else, and she doesn't know, and John Faw's, it's warning you about everything. And she's like, oh, okay, word.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's obvious by the end of this conversation that it's a no-go. Like, John Faw's not going to be like, you should go get it. So she moves on to try her next dad, which is Farter Coram, and she shows up and starts talking to him and tells him all about the warning from the alethiometer, or at least what she knows of it. It's very cute in the beginning because she shows up as she starts firing off at the mouth, like you know, like Lyra does, and he interrupts her. and He's like, "Hello, Lyra!" Like mid, like (laughs) two sentences in, he like looks at her and he just goes, "Hello, Lyra!" Like interrupts her, like, "Hello, (laughs) it's me. I'm
0: here." (laughs) It's very cute. It's very cute.
1: It reminds me of my grandparents and like you know, as a kid, me probably just prattling away and them being like, "Whoa, slow down
0: there, kid." Yeah, where are your manners? Child. <laughs> and Farter Quorum's like, you know, I know he doesn't say, I know your other dad said not to go, but he's also like, I too am saying, no, this doesn't make any fucking sense. You can't just go on a whim to find a ghost.
1: Quote unquote, ghost?
0: Yeah. The wolf? Liar's like, okay, shit. Both my dads have said no.
1: <laughs> now <Yeah>. what?
0: <laughs> well,
1: and of course, Farter Quorum had said, like, how could you do that to Ma Costa? She's seconds mm-hmm. away from Billy, which we know, haha, she's not, but Lyra can be uh Lyra speaks with the Costas next, hoping she can sway them, and she explains that if she leaves, it might delay finding Billy, Ha uh, bet, and Ma Costa says she'll think on it.
0: Yeah, and she does. I what I found interesting about this scene in the context of the entire episode is there's a moment where like Ma Costa is telling Tony to do some very, very, very simple cooking duties. She's just like, just, I don't know, fucking stir it or something. He's like trying to shirk that responsibility by saying that I'll burn it. And his mother's like, I don't care. Like, I need to go take care of something. Like, step up and do this, right? And I mean, Tony is still young. His demons only just settled. But she's telling him, all right, this is part of what it means to take on responsibility. It doesn't seem like a glamorous adult role. It's not you going out and being a spy, but sometimes adults, it's fucking boring, all right? And I think that's a great contrast to Will, especially later on in this episode, because Will's demon, as we know from the books, hasn't settled yet when we eventually see it, and it runs around with pan, and we get, an ex- we get an info dump of that they've seen a bunch of things, right? Mm-hmm. Because we basically see it for like two seconds change, and then it's his final form or sorry it's her final form but anyway will's being thrust into this very murky position of taking on a lot of these like caretaker responsibilities for his mother and it's not like this show of bravado as tony's been chasing of what he thinks that adulthood is and i really like the way that this question in the q a on twitter to the his dark materials account and will Willie McGregor. <sighs> Uh, who directs the scenes of historic materials that take place in our world? Uh, discusses it of like Elaine and Will's complex relationship, constantly shifting between mother slash son and childcare slash dependent. And this comes from Twitter user Ted Ryan ninety four. And I think it's significant. It's not like a huge deal, but I think it is significant that Tony refuses in this moment to cook for his mother, and he eventually like does it reluctantly. Whereas later in the episode, we see that Will is the one who has been tasked, for the most part, in his own home. He's the one who's cooking for his mother and their family.
1: It's so rough because I feel like that's something anyone can relate to. In some way, each child has had to caretake for their family, and some obviously have it extremely rough. And not that they would ever say that, but some people have to take care of their family in a little more extensive way whether it's impairment, whether it's chronic illness in general, it's hard and it's it's it was a very emotionally pulling bit of the show, seeing that and then seeing the Costas and how they're coping, especially when we get to the end with them sobbing over Billy's body, right? Uh, Families and how they cope and the humanity of what keeps people together and keeps them talking and keeps them, you know, continuously improving themselves. Uh, It's all very complex and it's interesting to see play out on this show it's very different from a lot of the tv i think has been out there in the last few years right game of thrones was obviously a big game changer haha but i think this is different seeing it finally brought to screen and given its due diligence i think it brings up a lot of conversations that people everywhere aren't having and they should be having
0: yeah and i'd be interested to see where that goes and obviously tony doesn't have it easy right like (laughs) they've all set out on this huge journey north And his brother's missing. He's about to not be. It's about to be even worse. But he's been thrust into a very difficult situation as well. But right now, Will Perry is in a different kind of difficult situation. High school. Where he is ostracized as a freak by his peers. Relatable. It's interesting that uh, it sounds, it seems like, I'm not sure. But it looks like he's going to a private school. Mm-hmm. And I would make the assumption that perhaps a Catholic school—not necessarily not all private schools—but a lot of them are run by religious institutions, mm-hmm. which context That's interesting. Of, yeah, context of the storyline that could be interesting.
1: And I think it also frames him as this, you know, uh, abandoned kid, right? Like, obviously, not his mother. He's had to be there for his mother, and she has been there for him, although not in the full capability, probably that will needs but he has his father you know he he has that huge hole in his heart that it is his father and his soul you could even say that he's looking for Mm -hmm. and lyra of course has had that huge hole her whole life uh so they're both these like almost rich kids not by you know not not in the rich kid like house slytherin way right Mm -hmm. but like they're these like accidental orphan rich kids that you know will has to take care of his mother who his father left them in his mind you know, his they, his mom says he's dead and that's kind of what he believes, but he thinks deep down they were left.
2: Yeah,
0: whereas Lyra doesn't. She has, she grew up quite differently. She grew up with the with a sort of closure in thinking that her parents were actually dead and thinking that they had died some sort of noble, exploratory death. And quite frankly, she grows up pretty loved.
1: Yes. She has this huge male presence in her life of all the scholars and you know, a calm presence of some females like Mrs. Lonsdale, who's the best character in the whole entire story, and if you don't agree, you don't
0: know. And uh <laughs> read the Secret Commonwealth, it's good for your health. And she has friends, right? She interacts with other yeah. kids in like a mostly healthy way. They're they're having straight up battles, but they sometimes form alliances and it's a complex fun it's again, very childlike. She's and- not lonely. And what I way. was,
1: what I was really looking toward, though, was that, you know, she grew up without the female influence, the mm-hmm. maternal influence. And Will, well, you know, I wouldn't say he didn't grow up without that. He did have his mother, but he grew up without that father influence in his life. He didn't have that strong father influence whatsoever. Um So I think it's interesting that kind of duality that's shared by both of them, right? That opposites attract kind of thing. And Mm. the one thing the other had, the other didn't. And it's really just great contrast and really good writing when it comes to Lyra and Will. And this whole time, all I can think about is them meeting next season, episode one, first scene, you know? It's
0: gonna be, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Bringing it back, sorry, quickly to Tony. He... I don't we don't know when like Tony's father if he passed or left or whatever but it seems like because of the Egyptian culture he had, has had the benefit of it seems a quite a few father figures around him or other male figures who were there to help lead and even Benjamin stepped up to be part of that for Tony's life
2: mm-hmm.
0: not as a father figure but as at least a male mentor figure
2: yeah
0: anyway back to Will his mother is being watched Like, not, like, in a good way, like, watched while he's at school by Lord Boreal. Who approaches her? He's extremely charming. He tries
1: to get information about her dead husband, John. She does not give much away. Uh, She kind of scurries off and leaves, and then we see Will go to gym class. His teacher's very kind. Uh, This kid's kind of beating the crap out of him in boxing, in the ring, and his mom shows up. All of the kids are making fun of her and him it's awful mm-hmm. and she just keeps repeating that she feels awful for interrupting she's sorry but she was unnerved by the visitor the teacher is very kind to her but the kids are obviously all dicks and she it's so sad because she's like I don't mean it to cause any trouble I'll go I'll go and a kid calls her mental to Will and says he is too and Will lets his anger consume him and beats the crap out of this kid for a second and, and deserves guess- it
0: Case gets the, closed. Yeah, I agree. But then he gets the
1: crap beaten out of him. Yeah, he does. But, I mean, that adrenaline was rushing through him, so I don't think he felt it. <laughs> um, the teacher has Will go after his mom, check on her. Will doesn't believe his mother, kind of, about the visitor, it seems. He seems a little skeptical uh, when she tells him about the man that spoke to her. And she starts to count the tiles outside. The shot pans out as if they're being watched, and he asks her to come with him inside while he packs up his belongings to leave.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So first I want to, without very much explanation at all, reference the scene from the end of The Subtle Knife when Will and John Perry meet. They don't know who the other is yet. Too late, you haven't got a choice. You're the bearer. It's picked you out. And what's more, they know you've got it. And if you don't use it against them, they'll tear it from your hands and use it against the rest of us forever and ever. But why should I fight them? I've been fighting too much. I can't go on fighting. I want to- Have you won your fights?
1: Will was silent. Then he said, Yes, I suppose. You
0: fought for the knife. Yes, but- Then you're a warrior. That's what you are. Argue with anything else, but don't argue with your own nature.
1: Will knew that the man was speaking the truth. But it wasn't a welcome truth. It was heavy and painful. The man seemed to know that because he let Will bow his head before he spoke again.
0: Anyway, just leaving that there in the context of Will in a boxing scene. Anyway, so I'm going to come back to Elaine for a second. In the books, it's strongly suggested that Elaine, Will's mother, has schizophrenia or something similar. And in the show, it seems that they've gone the direction, in my opinion, it reads to me like obsessive compulsive disorder, which is characterized by, quite simply, extreme compulsions. (laughs) I'm super oversimplifying it. I personally think it works. Like, I don't have any strong feelings of what it should have been either way. I'm just like, okay, yeah, fine. This works for me, especially with a visual medium, because it's something that can be shown through those tics and the rituals that Elaine performs rather than necessarily having her try to act things out like that or trying to show the difference between what's going on in someone's physical and mental world. And, you know, for clarification, OCD, a lot of people talk about it in a very casual way as though it's just being like, oh, I just am a huge neat freak and need things to be clean or tidy. But Elaine shows if, if this is OCD, it's not. Exactly like that. Um, And people who have OCDs often know that they do. Elaine's showing that again. I have friends who know that they do. And it's shown in she's realizing she's giving into these compulsions. They know that there are things that are nonsensical sometimes. But it's it's a need, right? It's that obsession, need to perform the counting, the constant checking, things like that. Um, it can manifest in other ways. I have friends for whom like certain patterns, like literally visual patterns are triggers for them and they feel like it's full of illness, right? It, it is, it isn't, right? Like things like that. And Will asks Elaine if she's taking her medication later on and there are medications that folks can take to help with OCD. There are serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SRIs that can help with those symptoms. So,
1: Yeah, and to that I I do think it's interesting that Pullman does sometimes show certain illnesses. Uh, Obviously, this is something he wrote for Elaine in the books that she has some sort of impairment as far as mental illness goes. Something that, whether it's anxiety, whether it's schizophrenia whether it's ocd i i felt like the show characterized it well enough in the way they did and i think the way that pullman does it in the book is obviously better i mean you can't you know you can't say you like a piece of art better than that come on now uh but pullman does it well he shows that grocery store scene which is vaguely mentioned by will and mrs perry in this uh back and forth at some point of just you know them grocery shopping and it being a normal everyday activity for them you know every not every day God, that'd be a nightmare having a grocery shop every day. A weekly nightmare. (laughs) A weekly thing for them of them going to the store and playing this game. But then the game was real. And I I think that was pulled across well in this episode that the game was actually real. Uh, At least for us, we saw it. And I think that whatever mental illness that Elaine does have, it didn't need to be categorized because you could see the fierce protection that Will felt for her either way, and obviously that she has a little bit of difficulty with doing things that some people might not.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It doesn't need to be characterized. I'm yeah. just no. I, like, I, I do think that the counting especially
1: with the OCD is interesting, and it reminds me also, I had more of this, and I just kind of like lost it not thinking about it, uh, it reminds me a lot of other fantasy pieces like the magicians that lean heavily into mental illness signifying mm. magic, and with what Tana said about her counting the worlds counting out, you know, the different planks. Uh, That, to me, reminded me a little bit of that, uh, of magic existing for Mm. those that have impairments. You know, those that see the world differently than other people.
0: So, until then, Will gets his gym things. His teacher asks if Mrs. Perry is okay. And Will explains she's just having a bad spell.
1: I'm guessing this is where Elaine's going to be left, by the way. That's also Mm. why we're seeing the gym. She's going to be left with the gym teacher, which I'm fine with um but that's my big guess we'll see what happens in the next episode or two but that would be my guess will leaves her with the gym teacher because he says you know my door's always open
0: i think that's i think that's a really good call and i think that you're right that's what we're going to see cuz why else introduce this guy <laughs> i mean there's obviously other reasons right like someone trying to be there for will but yeah i really do appreciate though jack thorne and the show trying to show this um Jack Thorne in that tweet (laughs) that we saw Uh, (laughs) 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 wrote hashtag his dark materials is about two child heroes. What I always loved about Pullman's choice of will is that he is a child carer. In today's broken world, what greater hero can you find than that? We wanted to give that the space it needed. I hope people like the choice. I just didn't like that. This was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Twitter so twenty four hours anyways, um, yeah, I agree, and I think that's something that's always really resonated for me with Will's character, and I'm sure you've all heard me gush about Will a lot, call him like my little boy and like my son, and I think this tweet put into words why that's always been so important to me, and why I've been so excited to get to the subtle knife and Will's story in these moments. I don't actually share this very often, so This is me really being vulnerable for a moment, but I I don't think I can discuss Will's story without it and why it's so meaningful to me. And it's because the story of Will and his secrets of being a child carer is my story. My father had a lot of different kinds of public outbursts and displays, um, suffered with chronic illness and pain, and having to deal with what that meant in many different ways in public, in front of one's peers, is something that I really appreciate that the show presented. We don't see Will having to deal with that in front of his peers in the books. Um, unlike Will, I had the privilege, though, of having friends at school, especially later on in life, in high school. All of the 90s uh, propaganda about you know people being unique really paid off for me again um and how everyone else treated me but i didn't really share a lot of those parts of my home life that were difficult to or what was asked of me being a child carer uh and there were times that school and extracurriculars were my escape and i felt a lot of guilt attached to feeling and there's a lot of guilt for me uh feeling that way attached to to those um emotions and It was because home life was hard, and I was sometimes actually asked to skip school by my parents in order to be that health and emotional and mental support for my father. So I really appreciate that we have a scene of Will boxing, um, him trying to find maybe some sort of solace and something else. It helps also, of course, characterize him as a fighter, as in that quote that we shared earlier. But it shows that he's looking for those outlets. He's still trying to have some sort of hobbies and maintain a sense of identity just for him and himself that's not purely defined by his family. And I think that's part of why I feel so hard for Will at the end of the series, at the end of The Amber Spyglass, because when he realizes he's losing Lyra... He's terrified because it means that he's going to be alone again, and he's gone through this whole journey. He fears he's not going to be able to share with anyone, and that's another secret that's going to sever him from the rest of the world until Mary Malone is like, I'm going to be here for you, I'll be there, and you can come to me with things. And just having that one person so that your secrets don't make you alone in in the things that you're hiding from everyone can make all the difference. And I appreciate that the show depicts all of this for Will. They make explicit those choices for him in the boxing scene with the way it's directed. His first lines in this entire episode, in the entire series, are to his mother. Like, everything else is nonverbal acting, and I think Amir Wilson kills it, right? But those first lines are that repetition of mom, 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 calling after his mother. It's him taking care of her. His first words aren't him retaliating to others through insults. He only does it through his actions. His, he, he uses his words to be there for his mother. And coming back to the episode at large, I think Will, he does fight, right? It's one of the ways that he's, of course, characterized. Did he have to? Did he not? I don't know. Eventually, he's going to have to. And I think that's part of the discussion with other scenes in the rest of this episode, whether it's like that. The Egyptians talking about we need to fight. Far saying we need to fight it, despite being ill prepared. What's worth fighting for? Yeah.
1: Um, and I mean, thank you for being vulnerable to us and everybody, not just me, because obviously you were gonna tell me this, but everyone's <laughs> I thought you hear already it, knew so. these about yeah, me. Yeah, I mean I do, but you know, it's still vulnerable yeah. and it's still really something special, and it does explain the connection you have with the series and with this character. And I think that what you said about him only retaliating with his actions is interesting, especially considering that Lyra uses the alethiometer to gauge how she should trust this human, Mm. what she should do about Will, and she takes it as he's a murderer. I trust him. Uh, And obviously, (laughs) well, and this episode does a little bit to help that, not Mm -hmm. only in this, but later with Yorick as well. Uh, She Mm. normalizes Yorick and what he did because of what she's read in her lithiometer, what she's heard from him, uh, she kind of understands more. And I think it's a good part of her arc to kind of, things aren't black and white Lyra. And she's learning that. She's learning that. They're very uh, gray in between, shades of gray. And for Will, he, his actions are what does define him in some of these. Uh, the knife, when he does get the knife, it's very big. When he loses those fingers, that mobility, he feels mm. very... Broken down, unable to function, losing a part of him. uh That's a severing, obviously, right there.
0: Yeah. And it almost kills him in some ways because turns out it won't stop bleeding because of the way the knife is. But someone's able to heal that wound. And it
1: it's fills a- that hole we talked about in the heart.
0: Yeah. Until he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why'd you kill my
2: dad?
1: Yeah, uh, we'll talk about that someday because I hate it. (laughs) Someday. But back to the show, Lyra watches the Aurora with Ma Costa. I thought this was a nice scene, actually. Kaiza is telling her about her father's arrest. Not as nice. Uh, He tells her that he doesn't know what she's looking for with this ghost child, but that she's right to look into it. Which, like, part of me during this episode was like, shut the fuck up if you're not going to help her, (laughs) Kaiza. She's like, well, I don't know what to tell you, Lyra, but you should keep doing it anyway. I'm like, what the fuck, you little nerd. I'm gonna give you a fucking swirly. But <laughs> Ma Costa tells her, Well, you should speak to John Fa in the morning and basically gives her blessing.
0: Yeah. And they're like, Well, Ma Costa said I could go, so both my dads no, but Mom said yes. Finally. <laughs> Someone had to, and and so we cut from that scene of Kaisa being like, Yeah, you should totally go do it, Lyra, to Fardra Corum and Sophanax meeting with who is it? Who is it, Chloe?
1: Serafina Pakala? What? She's I, here? I feel like you're asking me to be a lot more excited than I am about this I'm scene. Sorry.
0: It's
1: okay. I'm,
0: I'm just I I was just trying to. Be I more was excited maybe.
1: about Serafina. No, yeah. I was. It's just Maybe I hyped it up too much. This scene was a letdown in a couple ways.
2: Interesting. Not awful,
1: it was still fine. Like, it was a fine scene, but it was one of those, like, why? Like, we didn't have to have it this way. Yeah. It's great to have this off-screen invention, though. It is cool to see them meet and see them speak. It's just, it's made up. And... Seraphina comes, she tells Quorum that this whole bunch of exposition about the witches, how some of them are going to fight and some won't because the magisterium has part of them on their side. They talk about when they were in love and had the baby that died. She's like, I am 300 plus years old. I can't be with you. She gives some exposition about why other worlds are in the Aurora because the particles are thinner when the Aurora is happening. And then she makes out with him very briefly and she says she'll help when she can, but Kaiza has to take it from here. Farter painfully sobs at her leaving after telling her that he thinks about her and their boy every day. Okay, you have to give him something to do. I get it. You have to... He's a great actor, right? Like, he earned his place on this show. Contractually, he has to have some time. I get it. And you have to introduce Seraphina Pekala. Pekala. I don't want to say it that way, but I wanted to be fair.
0: I think both of them knocked it out of the park in terms of acting, and I think that's part yes. of why I appreciate the scene. And I'm like whatever. It's fine. Uh, Just because they did such a good job. And I'm like, okay, I feel feelings because you did so good.
1: Yeah, no, it was amazing as far as tonally. The actors were great. I do love her as Serafina. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It it bugs me. This is why it bugs me. Because we are never going to hear about her mother dying. And if we do, it's going to be next season. It's being played as if Serafina is this hardened manic pixie witch girl that can't stay with farter Corum, and has to go because she's a free spirit on the wind and leads these witches and they'll help when they can but they can't commit and it, it, it's like got some hints of that femme fatale and oh she's the wild earthy woman boho but not in the earthy, sky
2: she's but in the like, sky
1: yeah she's like boho in the sky though you know like yeah i don't I don't know, it's hard because they're building off of that from the books as well, as Yumi and Tana discussed uh, when Tana was on with us It's very they're very flimsy, these witches, it's very like they're either a jaded lover who has been scorned and is like, I'm gonna kill this guy, or yeah. it's Seraphina Bacala or it's uh, Ruta who is like, I wanna fuck Asriel, I yeah. should have taken my chance when I had it like, I, I, they're just like these lusty, red-blooded, like, we fly in the sky and we're warriors that live forever and we're sexy women and on Thursdays we do our Kegels. Um, I don't know. It just bugs me because then they made it all about now Coram and Serafina have to talk about their past that they don't talk about because that's what's so powerful about their relationship. It's the pride of these two adults that know deep down that they can't be together and work out these differences. There's something between them that, you know, this distance between them, including their son that's died, is too much for either of their pride to muster and climb that mountain.
0: Yeah, I, I can understand why it had to be done, maybe for a TV show, but I also agree with what you're saying. It- it's that pride and that it's too painful for them to see each other. And that's why, interestingly, they never do in the books. Mm-hmm. So it- It's like he was like, what if they did? And that's fine, but yeah. it's
1: meant for AO3. Come on now.
0: Well, no, this is just an alternate world. Maybe this is one of the other parallel universes that, it, apart from Lyra and the books. So Lyra convinces <laughs>
1: John Fa to let her go and that Eorik will take her. That's the next thing. He takes her. That's exciting. Uh, and this actually made me feel better since I sat there and I just rolled my eyes the first time I watched that scene. I was like, really, man? I was like, in my head, I'm like, what if Jack Thorne doesn't do this to me? And then he did. But John Faw gives Lyra until the next night to return before they leave without her, I guess. Or get that, worried that and look for her. That happens in the books. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I'm like, in my head, I'm like, what are y'all going to do? Leave without her? They'll find you. Go without her? Or are you going to go look for her instead? We don't know. We don't Honestly, know. Honestly,
0: in the books, both the, both these scenarios are wild to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Like you said, they're not going to just leave without the child.
2: Yeah.
1: But we do get, after this, a probably the most breathtaking montage. I don't know how you felt about it. I'm guessing similar. A beautiful montage of Lyra riding Yorick. It makes up for anything ever in this episode, and I suddenly forgot any of the sins that I've been bitching about. <laughs> uh, it, it's just good. It was great. It was good. It was good. I liked it.
0: It was good, and the coming back was also good. We're gonna yeah. see more. We're gonna see more. I bet they're gonna. We're gonna get a really, really, really good one, especially with the northern lights in the background and like the last episode as they're running <sighs> towards <sighs>
1: Roger, and she has to do the. Uh, they better keep the bridge in. Yeah, it's so important. It's the bridge between the next world, basically the bridge to the
0: stars, which is the name mm-hmm. of that forum. It's a good name. I'm mad at how good it is. <laughs> I always feel that way. <laughs> Will and Elaine then enjoy dinner and. Elaine tells Will, you're very much like your father and you're going to follow in his footsteps. Will disagrees. And then Elaine suddenly notices marks on the carpet in her room that make her realize someone's broken in. She immediately starts checking her sewing machine where underneath the letters from John Perry are stowed. She makes sure that they didn't find them because they are, mur- blah. Cause they are worth more than gold to her and possibly the world.
1: There's this line during dinner when she's talking about his dad to him. She first she tells him that he cooks like his dad, and I didn't think anything of it until I realized they're eating omelets, Eliana.
0: Like what Will makes Lyra when they meet. I thought he made her beans. He opened her a can of beans. Did he also make her eggs? That's right. The fridge eggs. Okay. Yeah, Um, but there's this line she says to him:
1: "This world is broken. It takes extraordinary people to fix it." extraordinary people like you like your dad to fix it and he says i'm not extraordinary does that remind you of anyone else
0: only because you tweeted about it
2: which yeah, was, a, it about was it was a
1: really good tweet thank you i, I was real in my feels i was really i'm in my feels man about little lyra <laughs> always um, they're giving it to me they're giving it to me always uh of course it reminds me of lyra with mrs coulter and you know daphne mm. keen's acting i can't I can't they're commend both her good. enough because they are both good. They're great younger actors and her acting in that scene with Pan, when her voice breaks and she's like, she's nice. I've never been called extraordinary before. Like it's just like so good. It's such yeah. a sad thing because neither of these children have been called that before. You know, maybe Elaine has told him that, but I mean, that's
0: all they needed to hear that they're special. And yeah, everyone's special, but I like that you've called this salad because now it makes me start thinking that like, part of what makes Lyra extraordinary, and part of what will make Will extraordinary, is Lyra fucking gave a shit. Like, she gave a shit enough to do something, and I think maybe, maybe that's part of what is meant by everyone special. Yeah. Give a shit. So. Do something.
1: Everybody has the same capability. Yeah. It takes you to be special. It takes you to be extraordinary, and- uh in this especially that's another thing. It connects Lyra and Will, right? Mm-hmm. Two extraordinary young people that fix the world. Yeah. The world's broken. It takes extraordinary people to fix it. Where are we gonna find these extraordinary people? Professor Xavier's mansion?
0: No, just there. <laughs> living living across the street. Um and all she does, you know, all she does is she <laughs> opens the fucking bubble i love that i love how it's come back to get us to be honest <laughs>
2: uh, i have a
1: lyra also eats eggs in the next scene by the way like right after will eats eggs
0: they're connected so i have a tin foil in this scene before will brings his mother the eggs it it's zoomed in at first on elaine's face and she's kind of got like her eyes in this like half-lidded expression, just sort of looking off to the side. And Elaine really, really believes, right, in the work that John Perry is doing. And the way that Elaine's expression looks kind of reminds me from the scene in the Amber Spyglass. What Serafina taught Mary to do now, sorry, Reminds me of the scene at the end of the Amber Spyglass when Serafina is teaching Mary how to see her demon, Um, and she says it's kind of off to the side, you kind of have to look a little to the side, right, but not concentrate, and I'll I'll just make the quote, what Serafina taught Mary to do now was similar to that. She had to hold on to her normal way of looking while simultaneously slipping into the trance-like open dreaming in which she could see the shadows, but now... She had to hold both ways together, the everyday and the trance, just as you have to look in two directions at once to see the 3D pictures among the dots. If any of you, like, oh. the, Pullman, like, references this in extensive detail in the paragraph before, but I didn't feel like quoting it, but the books, right, it's all just fucking dots, and you put your face all the way to it, your nose touching the page, and you slowly pull it away, and look in the way that Seraphina has taught Mary, and then you're going to see, like, I don't know, Peter Pan's ship. That's the only one that I remember starkly. <laughs> Or, and I mean, those I I know exactly now what you're talking about. I didn't
1: understand it before. Now that you say that, like, a whole part of the book just made sense. No, I get it (laughs) now, though. And it reminds me of, like, in Doctor Who, for example, in season, series two of Doctor Who, of New Doctor Who, there's an episode where uh, Rose Tyler and the current Doctor, the tenth Doctor, have on 3D glasses so that they can see dark material, basically. And... Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's something in sci-fi and in different fantasy that there's always this idea of being able to see other worlds with glasses or lenses and it's something that we come to obviously later uh but that's what that reminds me of and that's what that makes me think of along with a villain from doctor who called the weeping angels do you know of them eliana
0: no i've never watched doctor who well i mean it's a very popular
1: thing like the weeping angels are so i thought maybe you'd seen them oh i've
0: seen them but i don't know what they are other than that they scared the shit out of me
1: it's kind of the same. Well, good. They could. It's kind of the same idea as like those dolls that when you look away, they move at night. Oh, I don't like that.
0: that. I don't like yeah. that.
1: Well, those angels, it Mm-mm. starts off in the first time that they appear that it's a statue, an angel statue. They're actually an alien race that's come to this planet and they live off of it. They can't move when you see them. But if you're not looking at them, they can move. And if they touch you, they can transport you back in time. And live off of that energy that you would have lived if you had lived in your time period. But sending uh-huh. you back, they have this energy they can feed off of. Well, later in the series, it turns out all statues, they like corrupt all statues, and any statue can be an angel, but we'll get back to that someday. Uh, but it reminds me of that as well. Like, if you look out of the corner of your eye, it's there.
0: Yeah, I, I'm looking. There is a quote where they say corner of your eye, right?
1: I believe so. I'm looking.
0: Oh, we're at Dame Hannah now.
1: Along these lines, it's just like what Tana said, right? I think this actually fits really well, what you're saying, because Tana said that she's looking through, she's looking at those planks and seeing them like worlds and counting the different worlds. Uh, And it, it wouldn't surprise me if she, you know, she understood some of John's writings.
0: Yeah, I mean, people share their work sometimes their loved ones, and obviously this is something that he was passionate about. If he's the one who designed this house, maybe he was like, look, Elaine, I made this house to be like windows everywhere, windows into other worlds, so that we can always reach across and touch each other. Maybe. I don't know. That sounds like a cute romantic thing someone would say. Probably. (laughs)
1: You're like, if I understood love.
0: (laughs) If Uh... I wrote the fan fiction of (laughs) Elaine and John's life
1: and his newlyweds. The house is very, very much so symbolic of that cut too of that knife cutting of other worlds seeing parts and bits of other realms in the house uh i I, now that tana has said that i'm like i get it just because elaine has you know more vulnerable capabilities than maybe someone else doesn't mean she's stupid doesn't mean that she can't understand things like people undermine people with mental illness so much and think they're stupid or uh, incapable or you know infirm and incapable and Elaine is probably smarter than most people. She pays attention to things that they don't, you know? Yeah. She probably has read some of his actual writings to her that talk about different scientific learnings and things on his exploration, and she probably understands them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. John Terry doesn't strike me as also the kind of guy who marries someone who's not, in, who doesn't have a curious mind, right? Right. It's like you said. I, she, she believed all this. She loves her son, clearly. She's not, as you also said earlier, enough, but...
2: Yeah. yeah. Then
0: we come back to York and Lyra. As you said, eating eggs, <laughs> taking a break on their journey. It's all san. san. <laughs>
1: this is Sansa Stark and Sandor Clegane. Oh my god. Uh, Lyra is huddled against Yorick for warmth. It's actually very cute because she like, cuddles up against him and he growls instinctively. Again, Sansa and Sandor and she's like, I'm very sorry. I was just trying to get warm. And he's like, fine. Like, he like just like rolls around a little. Is like, all right, position yourself, kid. They discuss bear nature. They discuss demons. Bears don't have any. They're very solitary. She tells him about her father being imprisoned in Svalbard which most Lyra part ever, I was dying laughing. I don't know what you were doing physically, but I was actually like heeled over on the couch laughing because she starts spitting this yarn about her dad being able to trick these untrickable bears. She's like, he tricked me. He lied to me about my parentage my whole life. And then he sprung this on me and then this, this, this. And I'm like, yes, Lyra, you are a child. I get it. You are telling your big stories right now. Like I was waiting for her to be like, and actually I'm this and I'm this.
0: But she's not wrong.
2: He did lie to her
0: (laughs) her whole life. But also, I mean, as we're gonna see later on, he does trick the bears, but he doesn't really trick them. He more of just, like, scares them. And they're like, alright, I don't give a shit what we- that we give this man the nicest prison ever.
1: Yeah, honestly, if it's anyone that she... And we we will talk more about it, but Lyra quite obviously rejects her parentage on her maternal side. Uh, she's very rebellious. She's like, fuck you, mom. Like, you can't tell me not to bleach my hair. And... <laughs> I'm a diet green. <laughs> and... She rejects her mom so much, but Marisa is, like, about 80% of her actions. I'm like, oh, that's Marisa. Oh, that's Marisa. Whether Lyra admits it or not. When she says to Lee Scoresby, like, now what did I tell you about how I play cards? I'm like, okay, Marisa. (laughs) Whoa. Um, And her tricking bears is more like that, right? That is more what is happening for her.
0: And I guess her dad, too. Both of them. Apparently apparently
1: he tells her that he was sent away for killing another bear which is like a huge bear sin and Lyra's like you're just like my father they stripped him of all of his titles too yeah uh, Lyra and my favorite part though of this whole conversation is when he's like but you are not a bear and she's like you're wrong some part of me is definitely bear I was like shut the
0: fuck up Lyra <laughs> it's Like, it's not <laughs> Gif- Egyptian, yeah.
1: witch, bear, whatever. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, you're right. Like, it- it's in keeping with the character of Lyra that they've established throughout mm-hmm. the show. So, at least it's consistent. Yeah. But, yeah. she She's very childish with Yorick in a fun way. But they don't do fencing.
2: Nope.
0: But I kind of get it. I don't think that really, in my opinion, as we discussed during the book episodes, that didn't really show that you can't trick a bear. That right. just tells me that Lyra's a poor fencer. She's not trained in fighting. Yeah, she doesn't know. How would she know how to, like, faint in front of a bear, you know? We come back to Will, who's looking for his mother before bed, but instead stumbles into the room with the letters instead. And as he's there, Elaine says, you know what? I changed my mind. You can read them. And he's like, no. Well, now I don't want to. So there. (laughs) (laughs) just like Lyra. I'm going to dye my hair green. (laughs) So there, these
1: rebel kids. He closes the door on the letters for now. Dot, dot, dot.
0: But now that you talk about them as rebel kids, it is a contrast, though, to Lyra's earlier scenes with her own mother that we don't, she doesn't know it's her mother, but she goes explicitly to sneak into her mother's study to read her secret papers, whereas here he has the chance to read his father's secret papers and has chosen not to
1: yes will is a good boy a clean boy a handsome boy you bring him home he's gonna be a doctor someday <sighs> lyra bad
0: ratty girl bad girl stinky girl i love her but <laughs> just, bad girl <laughs> i just think that they're like so it's, it's interesting that contrast between who they are and yeah. opposites attracting but not they complement each other lyra's throwing mud at people yeah they complement
1: each other She is wild. She is a savage. As Charles Lantrum says to her, she's a brat. A savage brat. (laughs) And she's my savage
0: brat, goddammit. And she's like, damn straight, I am.
1: (laughs) Through and through to the core, Charles.
0: Lyra and Yorick, we're back here to Lyra and Yorick. They come to the village and Yorick says when he feels fear, he masters it. Pan is super floofy again in Aww. the Arctic Fox form. This is my favorite of Pan's forms thus far. I well, understand because
1: it's like all he is anymore except for like Airmine once.
0: Yeah, I understand that the Ermine is like classic. Right. But the butt is not as floof.
1: No. Cute though, small.
0: Small. I do like the small and the little nose, but not floof. Pan is hesitant and feels anxious, and Yorick thinks something's wrong as well. But Lyra continues forward. Pan tells Lyra, turn back. She tells him, no, we have to trust the alethiometer. And she repeats herself that she's going to master her fear over and over again. Fear cuts deeper than swords. You know, you know this deal. Fear fierce
1: as a wolverine.
0: (laughs) Swift as a deer. (laughs) <laughs> I love you <laughs> what? that? Those are literally... That's literally
1: what it was that's all yeah. it was I was like this is Arya Stark it, it, this is it so inside this is such a big plot twist and I know everybody here listening probably felt their heart just like wrench when you were surprised by this because inside this fishing hut is Tony Macarius I'm just kidding no one was surprised it was Billy Costa the lost boy not Tony Macarios. Everyone can sit back down. But it's Billy Costa and Lyra brings Billy back atop Eorick, telling him that she'll take him to Ma Costa. You know, the first time I've ever thought any of this CGI look cartoony was tonight on this episode.
0: Yeah, I kind of felt that way about Hester a little.
1: Yeah, a little bit too. A little bit with Hester in the one one shot we saw of her. Mm-hmm. Um It got a little cartoony tonight, and maybe it's more seeing several, and maybe that's what it is. Seeing several of these animals in one shot isn't uh, easy, because it did look cartoony from the front. From the side, from the back, it was fine. But seeing Yorick and Pan in the same shot, dead on, I was like, alright, what the fuck is this, the mystery machine? Like, what's going on, Scoob? Like, they looked like they were creeping up to a hut to demask a killer on an animated show. I was like, what's going on? I was giggling. But it, it looked fine, like, from afar. It was just up close for a second. I was a little, maybe I was just a little like, whoa, what the fuck? <laughs> I
0: think that's a... interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't I really notice, but I wasn't like, I wasn't super, super paying attention at that moment. But yeah, I, there are moments that every now and then I'm like, ooh, weird. Right. But yeah. And maybe it's just CGI, you
1: know, maybe. We're I think old. it's just a CGI. My parents have, like, one of those really nice TVs, so at Christmas time I know I'm going to get weirded out, because when I watch shows on it, it's like, why does TV look like this? Yeah, it's it's
0: weird. Uh, We recently got one of those. I'm like, why does TV look like this? I guess you get used to it after a while, but I'm out here like, (laughs) nope. Nope. I don't know if that's true or not. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I haven't gotten used to it yet.
1: (laughs) Let me know when you do. Okay. I I just, I won't ever complain about Kaiza again, I guess, because... I could see why a goose might look silly now that I like saw this in the face. Like they looked at me, I looked at them through the screen. I was like, "Oh god. Uh another interesting thing in this scene, the only interesting thing in this scene, honestly. <laughs> Not to uh throw some shade, but the the one thing I thought was interesting was Billy when they get in the hut is counting. He goes mm. one, two, which reminds me of Elaine counting the tiles in the walls.
0: Couldn't even tell that Billy was saying things; it was so faint.
1: It was very quiet. But
0: I think I think that's a really great catch.
1: Yeah, very uh, interesting. I just didn't at first. I was like, "Wait, is this?" And then when she
0: was counting the
1: tiles and the uh, the planks, I was like, "It has to be. It just has to
0: be." Obviously, Elaine isn't severed, right? She has her soul. She's she's very much here. But I wonder now that you've pointed this out, is this a way that they're going to sort of indicate? that a specter maybe has eaten the soul mm. of any of the adults in Sirigaze I could see that I think so
1: and it could, I was it's, an easy,
0: it's an easy motif
1: and like I said to you in that quick shot from that trailer last week I couldn't tell if it was a witch or if it was a specter and honestly now that I've seen what it looks like when Serafina flies off I'm Kind of uh, pushing toward it could be a specter. We might see some specters. Hmm. Maybe a flashback. Maybe it's just something we see in like a book to pull ahead kind of thing that we're, you know, invented scene. But I think we might see some specters. Anything could
0: happen, apparently.
1: Apparently. Season three. Who needs that? It's (laughs) over.
0: I mean, I like that I'm being kept on my toes. I like the surprise (laughs) when the writer doesn't tweet about it (laughs) i'm sorry everyone i'm just a little salty it's fine It's. i think this is our
1: first salty episode we've had a little bit of things here and there that we're like oh okay that was interesting but whatever uh this week is our first salt episode we're like "Mm, interesting
0: and i think it's only a little bit of salty just just a tad it's enough to keep
1: us fun add some flavor yes
0: Yes, absolutely. We're, finish.
1: We're finishing our steak like a uh, salt bay. Yeah.
0: Is that still relevant? Probably not. I think so. Right? I don't know. This is just a little Meldon salt. Speaking of relevancy,
1: Billy Costa returns for a brief trip back, uh, until he joins Radder. Wow. Billy- <sighs> sorry. I'm
2: what sorry. The fuck God. <laughs>
1: Billy collapses, and John Faw lifts him into Ma Costa's arms. Lyra makes to follow them, but Lee holds her back, telling her they love her, but they probably don't want her here for this. Lyra tells Lee that the alethiometer was right, that Billy was a ghost. It was like he wasn't there. Then that was it. That was the emotional weight right there.
0: I am glad that Lee held her Lyra back here because he's right. Every now and then, she does need to be told no and respected, and she does here. I think there's some noteworthy distinctions that we are seeing uh, between what's considered the private space and the public space. We actually talk about these, I think, a little in our Aswoff reread at some point. I don't remember where. And what parts of family belong in the private one? We see it mostly in this moment through the interactions of Tony and Ma Costa and Billy being together as that family for the last time and I think that stands in great contrast to again the scenes of Will and Elaine in this episode for example how Will hardly speaks unless he's with his mother in that sort of private space that they have with each other. Lee also says a different noteworthy thing here When Lyra asks, why would the Gobblers cut off children's daemons? And he says it's about control, that if you can cut off someone's soul, you can control them, essentially. And we've referenced Lo Muir a few times on this podcast, but again, Lo has written another fabulous essay, digging deeper into those power dynamics using a Fakodian framework that we touched on last episode, where... They draw the lines between power, sexuality, and the control over it, and again, how this ties into eugenics and discursive power, as, as Lowe goes into detail and explains what that means in Foucaultian terms, and who has it. And I think that with this line that Lee says about control, Lowe absolutely hits the nail on the head about the Magisterium's obsession with controlling sexuality, because it is so important in society. It holds a lot of weight. People are talking about it all the time. And if intercession is meant to be a metaphor for sterilization among, you know, it's a metaphor for a lot of things, right? I'm not saying it's only this. All right. And there's a sociopolitical aspect in terms of whose bodies are policed and whose aren't. Uh, we're going to link these essays and we're also going to talk a little in depth about Lowe's other essay, on aspects of racist systems in Sweden and Scandinavia and how these intersect with some of those eugenics practices.
1: Yeah. Lots of good stuff. It's been really cool actually learning with Lo. Yeah. As we go along. I think uh I was reading some of the essay. There was a little edit at the bottom that Lo learned something about Sisselman from our episode. Huh. Last week they learned something about Sisselman after the episode last week and our episode and I'm sitting here, and I'm like, well, I just learned 8 million new things from your essays. So how do you do? <laughs> so it's a nice symbiotic relationship. It's very fun. Uh, and it's awesome to see someone writing stuff about his dark materials. It's yeah. almost inspirational enough for me to get off my butt and do something. But we'll see. We'll see. Liesanarborgold.com, where I post new essays. <laughs> God damn it. Tony and Ma Costa are watching over Billy and his final moments. Macosta sings to him and tells him that he can go to Radder now. He can be with him. It's sad. And the second time I watched it, I got really sad. Like, I know all of you are keeping count. This is now five episodes out of five episodes that I've cried. Then I cried a second time today, rewatching it. So glad you guys have your count now. Tally that one off. I just wish they had let Macosta Costa be Macosta, Costa, not just sad mom. To make it sad. It's just a bummer. It-, it was sad, but, like, the whole time I was just, like, interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh... I wish Billy had any fucking lines, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Uh... It's okay, though, because Ma Costa got to sing about it.
0: Yeah. Tony Macarios headlines.
1: All of them biffed it on this, right? Golden Compass, his dark materials, they biffed it on Tony Macarios. And that makes me so mad, because that's, like, the one... That's like the tool I use to measure your His Dark Materials adaptation is like, did it have Tony Macarios? I don't want it then. Take it back. And I do want this adaptation. I'm sorry I'm a brat. I do want
2: it.
0: but Yeah, and we were, we were waiting for them to nail it. We discussed it in earlier episodes. I was like, I get it. I see where they're going with this, but... It just got lost. It got lost. I didn't connect with it as much as I thought I was going to in this scene. and It's not hard
1: to make me cry. You made me cry already once today, so it's like... On the podcast, like, it's not hard to make me cry. I'm a very emotional person. I like crying. It gets the demons out. Not the demons. You keep those ones next to you or in, depending on the world you're in. But uh, for me, crying is good. Feels good sometimes. You know, if I'm watching a show that's emotional, I want it to fuck me up.
0: I cry a lot, too. I cry at what? I cry mostly at the happy endings, maybe. You know, I'm like, oh, how beautiful.
1: Oh, yeah. I cry at happiness. I cry at sadness. (laughs) I cry when I'm mad. I don't know. I can't help it. Um, another that's day true. we'll talk about this character in the John Dies at the End series not mm. Game of Thrones the other one um the one where... that's
0: literally called John Dies at yes. the
1: End <laughs> and there's a character who cries a lot and uh I totally relate like she has a whole passage about it and I'm like same sister like good for you
0: yeah and I also so, especially cry on things on a rewatch and not yeah, usually with like TV shows but I don't know movies
1: and catching little bits and pieces that you remembered from before that get you worse this time Yeah, Uh, and maybe that's what happened when I rewatched this the second time because I did cry at this the second time. I cried at the Will stuff the first time, if you had to know. But (laughs) rewatching it got me there, but it should have got me the first time. I should have been shocked. The only thing I can say for all of this is the slow build of horror that's happening. Uh, It's done really well that this episode turns into a horror episode very soon. And it's all Mm -hmm. starting very soon in this, because then after this, Elaine is unable to sleep, is where we flash to. She's Mm -hmm. standing over Will and watching him for a moment, asleep in his bed. And then she walks throughout the house and stops at the sound of their cat at the door. Moxie? She lets the cat in until she notices a light peering in and a car outside watching as she locks the door. The man, same from earlier, does not see her, and she watches, gasping, and begins to count the boards on the wall that we've been talking about.
0: So a year ago, in sci-fi, on sci-fi.com, someone wrote, Chosen One of the Day, which I guess is a series that they have, Moxie, the murder cat from The Subtle Knife. Oh, wow. And about how Moxie <laughs> leads to the death of these men. Anyway, sorry.
1: Um, I love it. Moxie the murder cat. And I love that Moxie is called Moxie because that cat yeah. has some Moxie.
0: Yeah. We know that Uh, Will's tied <laughs> with cats.
1: Boreal meets with Thomas in the next scene. Ugh, this scene hurt me. Thomas confirms that there's money activity in Elaine Perry's bank account, that John Perry has been putting money in there monthly and set it up before he left, probably. Uh, he talks about kind of how he set it up and that he set it up to be heavy at first and that it was obvious he had a plan of when to taper it and when to come back. They kind of hinted almost that they were watching that to see when it tapered and when they could use that to their advantage. He also said that if they follow the trail of money, they'll probably find the window that leads them to John Perry. And I'd like to just repeat uh, a brief statement, which is stay the fuck away from them. That's how I feel about it.
0: Also jokes on them, he's never coming back. (laughs) He's dead. Not yet. Soon. Yeah.
1: The way this is going, he'll be dead tomorrow.
0: I feel, I I think it's so interesting that Boreal can't, like, put it together or piece together, like, he was looking for the window, but he obviously was never able to make it back. Yeah. Like, we get it. You have the biggest crush on John Perry, but he's gonna let you down.
1: (laughs) That is what I feel like this is leading to.
0: I'm like, and that's,
1: again, my worry from last week. What's Lee Scoresby going to do when Boreal's done it all for him? It's all over but the singing, you know? Like, he's out there romancing John Perry.
0: Well, he's he's here to swoop in and be the, what is the word that I'm looking for? Rebound.
2: Oh my god.
0: <laughs> That's the word. Lee wakes Lyra up in the middle of the night. And you guys, I just think that this is really important because it means that Lyra slept this episode. Okay. This is a huge part of Lyra's characterization in the first book, in my opinion. Every every chapter, never gonna let it go. She takes like a nap.
1: Um, I would sleep go as far to say that it's implied she sleeps twice in this episode.
0: Oh my god! That's that's true, Lyra. That is the Lyra that I know. We are
1: finally at peak, Lyra, on the third of December, twenty nineteen, as we <sighs> record this at ten forty-eight p.m. We are at peak, Lyra.
0: But sleeping twice.
1: Low Lyra, not peak Lyra, anti peak. Bottom, bottom of the barrel, down, very down, very sad. Lyra being awakened by Lee, who tells her Billy died. Lyra wants to see him, and Lee takes her to see him before they set his body to rest with flame. John Foss speaks to Macosta, saying that now they know that they must fight. And while Maggie, Macosta, hugs Lyra, clutches her close to her, she responds, no, they have to kill.
0: Yeah. Okay. I've seen that trope before. Yeah. Yep. Whatever. Uh,
1: the Egyptian faction sings a goodbye song in chorus to Billy as his pyre is ignited. And everyone harmonizes really well, which is, I think, maybe why they all have bird demons. Oh. Like, they have not one bad singer. Yeah. They all sounded beautiful. Like, really good choral voices. I was like,
0: huh, where <laughs> did just- you guys find all these singers? Or they just tell the one bad singer, like, amongst Don't all sing. the Egyptians, they're like, shh, just keep it low. Keep you it low. You're just saying
1: very quiet. You're a quiet.
0: <laughs> I just realized that Maggie saying that they have to kill is uh, supposed to be a tie in between her and Serafina. Ah. Uh, uh, I see it now. It's yep. a connection. So I realized at some point that there are words to this song. And so I turned on closed captioning so that all of you can have the lyrics. Uh it's it's that call and response, right? John Faw sings first dear son, and then they sing your soul never leaves you, dear son, God does never leave you. Dear son, you are God's son. Dear son, your soul never leaves you. My son, you are God's
1: son. Getting some mixed messages about the paternity. <laughs>
0: Uh, Who's the father of the baby? <laughs> is this confirmation? Some people were taking that one scene between John Fawn Makasa's confirmation that Billy people Costa is their child. People are taking it as child.
1: confirmation, and I don't get it. Uh, we talked about this about that scene when he was all yeah. intimate with her.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not. I mean, maybe we were wrong. I mean, he sang a song where he says he changes the last line instead of "Dear Son" to "My Son." So, I don't know. I just thought he'd be like way more upset.
1: I don't know I just don't think that he would randomly like know some hymn about your son dying and sing it about his son
0: yeah I mean obviously everyone knows the song
1: this is obviously all suspension of disbelief that the Egyptians have beautiful choral voices and they all gather in a circle and sing this song that they somehow practice enough to be perfect on key I mean they have nothing else to do I guess in the north right but like I'm just saying nobody
0: has the internet Chloe this is what people do they couldn't
1: even practice like all right. I mean, Suspension like, of disbelief aside, sure.
0: I think it makes sense. It's their culture and, like, they're singing for it. I, I think that the song is kind of sad and ironic in a horrible way that does kind of work for me of, Dear Son, Your Soul Never Leaves You. Yeah.
2: And and, and he does yeah.
0: to probably eventually go and rejoin Radder. That is how... It'll yeah. work at the end when Lyra frees everyone's spirits. uh. But the God does never leave you and the whole thing about God's son when it's the Magisterium that is funding what has happened yeah. to Billy Costa. I think
1: it's kind of looking past the system part of it and mm. maybe it's more hopeful of, you know, like yeah. the Holy Creator is good and his plan is good. It's just those that are... Trying to deliver it incorrectly is not, is kind of what they're thinking. I don't know. It's uh, it's It turns out they're wrong
0: about that, too. <laughs> yeah, right. God's fake. Open the bubble. Kill the <laughs> god. That is the book. All right, so the funeral. I guess we're at
1: our penultimate bitching. Just kidding. This is probably the biggest bitching now that I say that. Uh, our ultimate bitching. Second watch, like I said, was better. I didn't get sad. I was furious, though. About the lack of Lyra fighting for Space but I was furious the first watch at that. The second watch, I wasn't as mad. I got over it. I guess I put my big girl panties on. But I, I was more angry about Tony not being there, and I'll talk about it after this. Tony Macarios, yes, Tony Macarios. I was more angry at the whole no Tony Macarios, and we'll talk about it in just a second. But first, Tana sent us something. That kind of put it into better words, I think, uh, than what I would say of what really was disappointing.
0: Yeah, and this comes back to what we were saying about the execution. From Tana. Leading out to the reveal of Billy Costa was great. Spooky and hazy and cold. Lyra deciding to go into the fish house alone. Pan being scared and telling her not to. Yorick slash Sandor being concerned for her. All this is great setup for a spooky and creepy moment with a zombie child clutching a dead fish and mumbling about, ratter, where's my ratter? But no. We get inside and they decide to shoot this big reveal from a sideways angle where we cannot see Billy's face and we do not get any part of the, he was clutching the dead fish to his chest the way Lyra clutched Pantalaemon hard against her heart. All the anticipation of this critical moment is given to us through Lyra's voiceover exposition. Where is his demon? Is that Billy Costa? Which violates the sovereign rule of any visual medium, which is show and don't tell. The casual viewer could not even tell that this boy, who was inexplicably filmed in profile while laying down, why? And and again, I I want to remind listeners that her living is working within visual mediums. So... I really respect her analysis on this, who did not have his glasses on, who was barely moving, whose head was shaved and no longer looks remotely like the boy we met in episode one, was even Billy Costa. Lyra had to tell us that in her exposition. If Billy wandered that far from Bolvangar, surely they could have shown him zombie walking in the dark here. Surely they could have shown him clutching a dead fish. In the book, Slyra wanted them to burn him with his dead fish, but horror of horrors, the dog ate it. Violation after violation for poor Billy Costa, and yet in the show, we got none of that. What a wasted chance. Tana
1: felt it was a dreadfully disappointing scene, which, like I said, I did it first. I also feel. I feel like it makes sense that they didn't do the dried fish, and I'm only going to say that, and that sounds crazy because Billy was given. Everything Tony Makarios had except for name, right? All of a sudden he was given ratter. Uh, He disappeared similarly-ish to how Tony Makarios likely disappeared. He was lured over, you know. Tony, though, had no one and nothing. Billy was cared about, looked after. The Egyptians all go on this big mission for Billy Costa first. And all the kids as well. They're getting the kids back, but... Billy Costa is kind of the figurehead for the Egyptians in this, right? They're thinking we have to get Billy back for Ma. We have to get these children back for everyone. That's their poster child. Lyra, yes, has all these people searching for her, and her privilege shows through that, and she- we know that that would be her had Lyra not had this privilege in the protection of Scholastic Sanctuary from Jordan. All this bad stuff in life probably would have befallen her because you don't just wake up one day trafficked by the gobblers. You wake up one day and you've been born on the wrong side of the tracks and you grow up with not as many chances as other people. Vulnerable people prey upon that. For Tony Makarios, Radder was what he had in his world. That was it. When Radder was sliced away from this boy, the person in the world who understood or could fathom caring about it was Lyra, watching in horror but also not being able to not care for this creature, this boy, that this shell of a kid that used to be full of life playing with other kids. And that's what's so powerful about the funeral scene for Tony. That everyone there is sad because it symbolizes the magisterium taking their children and exerting power over them. And it's awful. But for Lyra, she's not just sad about all of it. In that moment, she's sad specifically for Tony. For this little boy that other people have never seen him as a person. For who he was and who he doesn't get the chance to be. For Pan, who sees this child with a slain demon. For this small, cold, broken, lost boy. Yeah. Um, that's, to me, a sadder part of this ad- adaptive flunk than not having the dried fish. It's more about why he had the dried fish and, and what that was to him and what it really meant. It didn't have the same emotional weight. It was never going to. Tony Macarios was always a separate moment from this Egyptian forge for the children, it was this quiet, creepy, awful moment of intercision,
0: yeah, it's all of those things, and honestly, with the way that Will's story is presented, I think it kind of makes sense in the context of Tony Macarius because Tony Macarius was just unlucky enough. Right. As you said, born on the wrong side of the tracks, and the world was unfair and unjust, and he was taken, and his mother wasn't fully there for different reasons, right? She struggled with substance abuse and thought, oh, maybe she thinks Tony has run away and doesn't go to look for him because she thinks that she deserves this. And none of that is what happens. And as you said, it's unjust because of what happens to Tony in and of itself. And we do see that some of the other kids care about him in Bulvanger, right? That there was a moment, a sort of like sweet moment he almost had with a girl. They tried to actually hide from the from the nurses when they were coming to take Tony and didn't get away. And it's the dead fish and it being fed to the dogs and Lyra's fury at it I think that what it is for me is not just like oh how painful for these characters that we've bonded with as it's being tr- trying to be played out with Billy Costa's scene. It's that Tony Macario's mattered regardless of whether or not anyone cared about him, right? And that. The last thing in the world, as you said, his fish is taken from him. Is just one more injustice that has been done to him. Like as though you couldn't take anything else from him, you would take that dignity. And Lyra does what she can to give him this last bit of it. Yeah,
1: and it's an important moment for Lyra. It it, it characterizes her in all of her eyes. Uh, that's a big moment, and you know, Lee Scoresby telling her, "Hey, I'm proud of you, kid." out here doesn't have that same weight as what it would have to that moment. And it's not entirely awful. Like the whole scene, this doesn't ruin the episode. No, it's it's a bummer. It's I wished for better. It's still a scene and it still gives us a lot to process and talk about. And, you know, the whole funeral scene is beautiful. It really Mm -hmm. is. The sat right there, uh, out, out there, ways away from Bolvanger where these Egyptians have gathered is very pretty we see Hester and Sophonex in the same shot, which is a blessing. First off, to see my favorite things in the world together. It actually was a cool shot because it shows them, and it shows them very sad and mourning. We see Hester and Sophinax in that same shot, these adult demons grieving for what has happened to this boy and his demon, and then it pans, no pun intended, over to Pan, and he's so small. He's in his ermine form, and he's small, and he's white and just innocent, just pure innocence, and I think this would be a great place for me to talk about Songs of Innocence and Experience by William Blake and the title of the episode, The Lost Boy. Kind of this idea of innocence and innocence lost and you see these adult demons that they know of this horror and you watch them and then that slow move over to Pan who's never seen this and who's just horrified, right? And uh, guessing that's what was being conveyed as far as you can convey on a CGI ermine's face. <laughs> but it, I'm just saying, I'm guessing. William Blake is a huge influence on Philip Pullman, and you may recall if you've listened to our previous episodes that episode three of Northern Lights, seven to nine, and episode four, chapters 10 through 12, we brought up Songs of Innocence and Experience by William Blake. Songs of Innocence was a lyrical slash poetic book released in 1789, published individually four times before it was combined with the Songs of Experience. 12 editions were created. Joint Songs of Innocence and of Experience was finally created in 1794. Each book has a more specific theme. Songs of Experience is a little older, uh, has more tales about adults in it, and it's a little more experienced. It's all in the name. And Songs of Innocence is very much so innocence. It's about childish candor and religion and uh, very just stuff about kids and God. And it all seems just very lighthearted poetry. However, There are a couple poems in particular I want to bring up here that also have a mirror of themselves. Uh, The two poems I want to talk about that go along with the title of this episode and a lot of the themes that we're seeing with Billy Costa and also even with Will are called Little Boy Lost and Little Boy Found. In The Little Boy Lost, the poem is, Father, Father, where are you going? Oh, do not walk so fast. Speak. Speak. Father, speak to your little boy, or else I shall be lost. The night was dark, no father was there, the child was wet with dew. The mire was deep, and the child did weep, and away the vapor flew. So that was Little Boy Lost, and Little Boy Found is, The little boy lost in the lonely fen, led by the wandering light, began to cry, but God ever nigh, appeared like his father in white. He kissed the child, and by the hand led, and to his mother brought, who in sorrow pale through the lonely dale her weeping little boy sought. So the first poem, Little Boy Lost, is about a boy lost in the woods, following his father, which has a dual emphasis here, to also mean God, following God, but by the end the little boy is wandering around covered in mud, or, a closer translation, in sin, or dust, and his father has turned into vapor and misted away. It speaks about the innocence lost, and as an adult, once you stray from his, quote-unquote, path, you're lost because you're covered in this sin or dust. The second poem, Little Boy Found, the little boy is led home by God's light to his mother after originally straying from his path. The Oblation Board would probably frame this in propaganda as what intercision is or does. It saves you and cleans you of your sin uh, and then leads you back to him. But here, as Billy Costa's laid to rest, we know what truly actually happened to this boy. He was mutilated by the church to take what little power he had away. These two poems are absolutely framing what happens to Billy Macario's Costa in this (laughs) scene from beginning to finish his show arc. And uh, interestingly enough, they are framed against a whole entire other view. When you look at in the Songs of Experience, there are two poems Little girl lost and little girl found. We won't go into detail today about it, but it does kind of signify this whole idea of two worlds, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I absolutely am so glad that you brought these back up. And I think that tying it into these moments and these scenes is really sharp. And it, it's what's going on here. And I think it helps enrich you know, what we're seeing here, even if we didn't love the execution I think it's what's up (laughs) (laughs) so
1: we come back to our world yeah we're back in Will's home and Elaine is not sleeping still and lights are shining in Will's window I think the best part about all of this this fast and hard ending that's coming is that it turns into this horror so quickly The red light and the bright light shining into the Perry's house is that perfect cushion to what happens over the next two scenes when it comes to Bullvanger. We've grieved already for Billy, and the show catapults us into paranoia, tension, and anxiety, and then the Tartar's attack. Uh, We just talked about William Blake, I know, but I did want to come back as well that in that meta sense of how this is framed, especially flipping to Will's world with the title of the episode as The Lost Boy, It's not only referring to Billy Costa and his demise, but also to another boy who's lost, Will Perry, who's searching for his father deep down, murdering, even, maybe, we'll see, and straying from his LOL magisterium, his path, covered in mud or sin or dust, whatever you want to call it. And I feel like this is really showing us the two worlds really well, and I think it's actually represented a little bit here with this title. I like that they stayed true to some of these chapter titles.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it was a smart choice to juxtapose that that title as not just being about Billy Costa slash Tony Macarios, but also being about Will, so. And it also proves that theory that it's I came up with in
1: episode three and four. I'm
0: just putting that out there.
1: That we it was should... about them. That those poems are literally about them. Yeah. I'm like, oh, so I'm right. You're telling me yeah. I'm right. Good. Good. Thanks <laughs> for are... time traveling, Philip Pullman.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Jack Thorne. <laughs> <laughs> Along with all of that, I want to circle back to Lowe's essay on Foucault uh, when they talk about the panopticon and surveillance within the structure of the magisterium. The panopticon is, um, the idea of the panopticon is actually a prison originally designed by a philosopher, which, uh, Jeremy Bentham, and Foucault uses it to discuss, uh, what he calls as the surveillance state within society and the panopticon is basically it's a jail a prison in which the prisoners are always being looked at imagine it's all glass and it comes from the term uh, the name panoptos who was a giant in greek mythology who had like a a thousand eyes or something a hundred eyes something like that so, side note, if you ever see me in person, ask me about my thoughts on the Panopticon and how it functions in Aswaf regarding the Master of Whispers with Varies, especially in the first book, and especially with Blood Raven, whose name is literally a thousand eyes in one. I'm not going to write it as an essay, but, you know, maybe catch me drunk sometime. Ask me about my thoughts. Anyways, Low discusses the internalized behavior and rules of conduct and society of characters who fear that surveillance, living within the, the Panopticon, that surveillance state. Low gives a much better summarization of what the panopticon means uh, especially within society and how it ties into the magisterium and people assuming that surveillance state right people are terrified of the magisterium and being like oh this is heresy we cannot do this thing and i think it's interesting that as tana pointed out there is so much glass in the perry household in the way that the house looks and effectively, what Boreal is doing with Thomas is creating an actual panopticon by watching every facet of the Perry's lives, looking at their finances, and they're not just creating the sensation and fear of it. Th- that does exist. They are they were kind of, I think, hoping that Elaine wouldn't notice. That usually works better for them in those cases, um, but they are creating even that like lived feeling of the surveillance state within the Perry household. Elaine's the only one who's functioning under it. And it's invasive because it's happening within the confines of our own home, which should be a private space. Granted, of course, that is how the panopticon works. It uh, is permeating, right? And but you end up getting that blurring of those private and public spaces that we were referencing earlier, that invasion of privacy. And I think that Invasion of privacy ties into the end of the episode with Lyra, right? That feeling of vulnerability, nakedness, and that's how Elaine feels now in the confines of her own home. There, she's not safe. Lyra's body is, um, is scoured, right? By by these nurses. And it also ends up sowing distrust between mother and son, because Oriole, in a way, is sort of capitalizing on Elaine's mental illness. She becomes not only a person living within the panopticon, but a sort of Cassandra to her son, who's not believing that, oh, yeah, no, people are actually here. It's actually fucking happening. And, of course, not all distrust between child and parent is unwarranted, right? There are moments when it absolutely makes sense. And like the end of this book. Yes, like the end of this book, like the middle of this book, right? <laughs> Actually, and, the whole entire series. Yeah, a lot of it. But without having yet finished La Belle Sauvage, which, uh, okay. as you might remember, Chloe asked me about earlier today and uh low touches on the fucodian panopticon being an aspect in Belle sauvage and i kind of wonder boyle must have learned these ideas from someone who is effective with it because while he's not doing it intentionally maybe he is maybe he isn't he is very much breaking apart this important like societal the social bond between will and elaine here in the way that the league of saint alexander did by recruiting children into being agents of their surveillance state. It destroys familial structures and that breaks down society in many ways and he's doing that to Will in the lane here. As things kind of go on
1: after LaBelle, uh it gets ramped up. It's very much so that all-seeing eye that kind of has happened that like snow globe, right? Like it's like they're living in a snow globe yeah. and every move is watched. And that's what it felt like lots of great shots to make you feel that way as well. Uh and The other thing that it made me think of, and you might realize this too, we were just speaking about, you know, looking out of the corner of your eye to see your demon, or her counting the planks and feeling the worlds almost as she does so. Um, It kind of reminds me of Bonneville, Gerard Bonneville Mm. in La Belle Sauvage and how I want to say it's during the farter quorum bit that we read, spoiler alert, if you have not read La Belle Sauvage, that there's a part where a character, Beloved... Corum Van Trexel sees out of the corner of his eye the hyena demon and the man uh, and they, and throughout the book he kind of appears like that you don't see him but then all of a sudden someone will see him out of the corner of their eye and then he disappears
0: mm. so it almost feels like
1: that interestingly enough
0: yeah and that's what's being done here and then we get that outer shot of the Egyptian camp we come back to that and it all turns to horror the demons were all well done here yeah. We're well done in this entire scene, including the little squirrel. Which is why Hester only
1: appears in a frame and a half in this episode. <laughs> Had to pay for the wolves.
0: Yeah. It's always like that, isn't it? You can only have one animal at Dragons a time. Dragons
1: or wolves, pick it, bitch. The guards at the fire quietly have their throats slit by tartars, and a guy who's about to go take a whiz is out there, You've seen him before with the little squirrel demon hanging out, Egyptian. Uh, And, of course, he goes to take a pee during all this, so you know he's going to die. And they have a great shot where there's a wolf demon preying upon his squirrel demon, slowly walking up behind it. And then the tartar comes up and slits his throat. And the demon goes, poof, sparkle. Very intense. It's gone. Yeah. Pan hears a noise, and he wakes Lyra in the tent. And she goes to investigate and is kidnapped within a couple minutes. Very much so like Arya Stark getting the axe to the face in Game of Thrones, The Song of Ice and Fire. You just don't know if she's alive after this for a couple moments.
0: I actually thought they were going to end the episode here because they kind of did that when she was taken in episode... But no, they went all out. They they take us to Bolvangar with Lyra, also brought there. She's extremely disoriented and men and women are yelling around in Finnish around her. uh, The language, Finnish. And the lighting is... Very tunnel vision.
1: Yeah, she, it's very, like, everything is just so disoriented. It's dark, it's light, It's things are moving in and out of focus. She's dropped on the floor during this. It's so much like just straight up a video game cutscene. Um, she's asked for her name, finally. She's being spoken about and finished, and she has no clue what's happening. She's just sitting there, laying there. And she tells them her name is Lizzie Brooks. The woman reaches for her demon, very taboo, to get him to change, and Pan does change, that was the whole goal. She wanted to find out how old Lyra was, and she says, she's young enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, weird way to phrase that. Yep. Sends her with Sister Clara
1: to be, quote, prepped for immediate treatment, unquote.
0: Yeah, I I like that they kept the detail of the doctor at first trying to speak to Lyra in Finnish couple languages until they're like, alright, let's try English. Sister Clara's actor, this is a complete side note, has this way of speaking that is just so interesting to me. Like the way she punctuates like some of some of her consonants, uh, especially in what was at the end of episode two or so when she's telling the kids that they're going and she says, like, we're going to the best place ever or something like that. And like the way she says it, it's just like her lips are so pursed. I, I, I don't know. There's something that like really gets me like not in a bad way. Like it's so intriguing to me.
1: Yeah, she's great. She's really well cast, and I like that she actually gets a name. Right? She's Sister Clara. That's like I like as a random side evil villain nurse character. They named her. It's a small detail to like, Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't always happen for side female characters, right? So this is interesting. She probably thinks she's doing good, too. You know, not bad. Bless her separated soul slash heart. I was very bummed about No Poodle. Mm. I looked for the Poodle. There was no blank poodle
0: was it there in episode
1: two no she had some flying thing
0: Uh, hmm, oh that's wrong about
1: it then but yeah she had some flappity butterfly thingy oh like uh, maybe it was a moth it was something big and pan actually mimics it when he turns into a butterfly Hmm. again later it's very interesting
0: maybe someone also have a poodle who knows who knows there's a quote She looks on the verge of change, don't you think? She's Category A. Prep her for immediate treatment. Gross. Ugh. Yeah, Sister Clara tells Lyra to take everything off as they enter the other room, and then Lyra just strips down to nothing, naked in the unbaric lights. They get her some clothes to wear, and Lyra and Pan are like, oh shit, they're not like that concerned about being naked. They're worried about the kinds of clothes that they're going to put on, not because it's hideous, but because it's similar to Billy's jumpsuit. And they're like, oh, this is it, Brian Bolevanger. Not a- like that. They said it way more scared than I did.
1: Yeah, I think they were a little frightened.
0: Maybe mostly frightened. Probably. <laughs> this
1: is like an intensely sexual, uncomfortable scene, which is exactly what it should be. And I, uh, again, this was a all-out showstopper scene. Like they did awesome here. This yeah. was. I-, I forgot about any sins. I lived in the <laughs> moment. Right. Uh, she's being talked about like a slab of meat, like a lamb being led to slaughter. And we know Lyra isn't really lamb-like, so to speak, when we talk about this girl. She's a, a little vivacious, precocious. But most of these children here at Bulvanger are probably easily lulled into being lamb-like. And either they're gentle. Way, yeah, they're docile. They're a docile Some. people. Most. I, I mean, there's a handful that are probably wild, you know, out there, but... Most of them have been lulled into being docile either way. And you think about Lyra being sexualized and she stands on her own during this while she's nude and she's more worried, obviously, about, oh, shit, this is Bullvanger, not thinking anything of them sizing up her body in any sort of way. But imagine some of the more passive kids here. The things happening here we're not seeing. I mean, we'll talk about this in the next episode if it comes up, but... In the book, some of the girls are talking about all sorts of tests being done to them to measure for all sorts of things and what happens behind those closed doors that even Pullman did not explore.
0: Yeah, and Lowe actually references a quote that I think ties into this well. In the essay about Foucault and sexuality, um, Mrs. Coulter throws back at the magisterium when they're trying to hold Lyra and she says, "Missus Colger says, if you thought for one moment that I would release my daughter into the care, the care of a body of men with a feverish obsession with sexuality, men with dirty fingernails, reeking of ancient sweat, men whose furtive imaginations would crawl over her body like cockroaches, if you thought I would expose my child to that, my lord president, you are more stupid than you take me for."
1: Yep. So Lowe has written some wonderful essays, as we've spoken about, but they also Talk a lot about the Sami people in the first essay we talked about. What was happening to these people, these marginalized people that were just, you know, just fucked with for, you know, the fun for these people that wanted to just, you know, use them for their power and uh, get rid of them. And they're just, it's evil, man. Like, it's just horrible. I'm really bummed reading this series. because I'm just like, man. It's real, and it happens everywhere all the time, not just like this, not just in a fantasy yeah. world. Like, why do we need animals, talking fucking animal souls to make this a conversation, you know? Yeah. God. So there's this passage that Lowe translated in their essay, uh, basically talking about Sami people. Were, it was claimed they were born with certain race characteristics that made them inferior to the rest of the population. They could not live as civilized people in real houses. If they did, it was said they'd become lazy and neglect their reindeer, and it would result in them having to become beggars because they didn't have real skills besides husbandry of the animals.
2: Maybe if
0: you gave them an actual education, gave them access to resources and skills, whatever. Sorry.
1: No, they could just hang out with the reindeer all day. Reindeer are better than people. I heard it on Frozen. It's actually true. The Swedish parliament decides in 1928 the Sami who were not reindeer herders, would not have any rights. For example, they were given no special right to hunt or fish. They were given no special right for hunting and fishing in the lands of their ancestors. And the state drew a boundary between them living on reindeer husbandry and those that supported themselves in other ways. The schooling was also affected by this. In 1913, a law came about a special nomad school. It stated teachers would wander the regions in the summer. The youngest school children would be taught in the family's cot for a few weeks each year in the first three school years. The rest of school time was winter courses only in regular schools for three months for three years. The teaching would only cover few subjects and had to be at such a low level, children were not civilized. Children of nomadic Sami were not allowed to attend public schools. Yeah.
0: Talk Um, about, like, controlling knowledge as a means for keeping power
1: and that's exactly what we're seeing in this story uh it's pulling a lot from it and Lowe goes on to talk in their essay about how it wasn't just schooling and rights in general uh the ideas of eugenics and the way the swedish state sanctioned them is really prevalent in this and in 1922 the state's race biological institute was created in Uppsala, in sweden we did talk about this very briefly a couple episodes ago by the scientist Hermann Lundborg. And scientist is in quotes. I think it's very important to say that. He was researching the Swedish race and mixing of races in several ways by looking at records of marriage, birth, supplied by church officials who had access to that, physical examinations of people. He and other people traveled around Sweden to examine the Sami and other groups that were considered inferior, like Roma, Jews, disabled people, Finns, the physical examination of Sami people happened in collaboration with churches or schools. Often, uh, speaking of the Alexander League and, of course, of what's happening with the Magisterium. And another part of the movement worth mentioning is forced sterilizations. And there was a law that hindered the reproduction of the lower classes to increase birth rate among the better stock, choosing your genes. The sterilization program was between 1934 and 75, and sterilized over sixty thousand people, which in the US around uh similar years, there's a lot of lobotomy that went on that we talked about in some of our previous episodes that was also over sixty thousand people. So this is something that just recently was still happening. Um mm-hmm. this isn't just like, well back in the eighteen hundreds, this is the nineteen hundreds. This is feels like
0: yesterday. You might have been alive if Depending on how old you are, dear listener. Horrific.
1: Absolutely. This is just one place that's relevant, obviously, to the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of this essay that Lo has written, check it out. It's amazing. It talks about more and more of how this lines up some of the racism seen in different places in this area. Mm -hmm. And it's not just here. I mean, this is just relevant to this story. It's everywhere.
0: Lo ties it back in in... There's, so there's two essays, right, that Lowe has penned. One focuses on the Sami people and and the history of racism within Scandinavian countries. And the second one uh, that's a follow-up and ties heavily into it and brings a lot of these elements in is about that exploration of Foucauldian power structures within his Dark Materials. And Lowe ties it in at the end with talking about serialization, controlling of sexuality, as as a means of controlling you know life who gets to live what kind of people get to live who gets to be considered a people and not right and what gives these people more rights to do that yeah so that's that's i think a discourse in the books and it's actually something that i've been thinking about lately i Mrs. Coulter is given so much more depth and characterization, I think, that the reader sees. And we're seeing it also, of course, in this first season. And I never, I, I still don't warm up to Azriel, And I think part of it has to do with seeing what he does to Roger. But I understand, as I think about it more, why Azriel is so characterized in many ways as heroic, because if you think about it, Mrs. Coulter, the people that she's targeting, are Egyptians, are the lower class, and as have been pointed out by many people, the Egyptians are made up of a lot of different races. A lot of the children that are taken to Bolvangar, children of color, are minorities, um, especially drawing on this history of of the Sami people and. It stands in contrast, like, what she's doing is oppressing all of these people, what, so that she, only she, right, gets some power within this horrible corrupt system, whereas Lord Asriel does this horrible thing to Roger in the pursuit of maybe knowledge, revolution, right, seizing other means of power, but... The thing is, we only hear about some of his better acts, his better nature, and we see that the Egyptians hold him in high regard because what he did was he fought for their rights, he fought for the laws to be changed so that the Egyptians could have some freedom of movement. Freedom of movement is actually a very big thing when it comes to um, the rights that people have, you know, like, that's absolutely a tool of oppression in in a lot of conflict areas and things like that. So that Lord Asriel fought for that in contrast to what Mrs. Coulter does is I think a way that Philip Pullman is playing with our interpretations of good and bad and how people feel about certain characters. Lots to think about. And unfortunately going forward, it's just going to get crazier. I'm excited for this ride. I I'm excited to be, going through this and seeing the story come to life and I mean even if we don't like some of the choices the actors are nailing it
1: absolutely um, the emotion is there yeah I love Serafina uh, she was great I don't necessarily love the writing as we discussed in full but I did love her it did showcase her well and I think going forward I can't wait to see her interact with Lyra mm-hmm. I'm holding out for that that's what I want can't wait till uh, bullvanger's over for that reason I am excited going forward to see next week her relationship with some of the other girls at Bolvanger. Yeah, same. I'm really excited about that.
0: And it seems like they're going to give some characterization, right, to even some of the people working there. So I think it it'll be a really interesting interrogation into how people become complicit in evil acts. Well, guys, thanks so
1: much for tuning in this week. I know we got really heavy at the end. We got heavy Um, from the start of this
0: episode.
1: Yeah, but I mean, like, the jokes really ended. Yeah. They ended, as we talked about, you know. True. Oh, genocide and... True. And, you know, all the fun, happy stuff. So, next week, I can't promise we're going to bring much more happiness. However, hopefully we do. Uh, If you want to see more happiness for uh before season one episode six you can always check out our twitter sometimes i post really fun memes or pictures there especially if sophinax especially if eliana's not paying attention that account is at girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n and if you want to send an email to us and let us know what you thought about the episode our episode or the show this week or last week or next week whatever you want to do anything hit us that message at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com.
0: Follow us as we follow the show. Uh, we also do a reread of the a Song of Ice and Fire books following each character. We compile character POVs and go through each character. Right now we are still on the John chapters. But maybe that'll change in the new year as we start maybe a new character as well as the Subtle Knife. And you can keep up with our episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes. I'm sorry, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Acast, Stitcher, Podbean, where all of these are hosted and we upload them all initially. And
1: make sure to check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Girls Gone Canon. In October, we did an episode on the Golden Compass movie where we analyzed it, talked about the script, talked about why it was what it was. Uh, you could check that out, $5 and up patrons at our Patreon. This month, we did put on an episode for our Song of Ice and Fire fans on House Valerian, but next month, we do plan on coming back with some His Dark Materials-related material, so to speak. Uh, this Prima material will be, of course lantern slides from some of the his dark materials books so stay tuned for that again patreon.com slash girls gone canon
0: and thanks everyone for tuning in see y'all next week i've been one of your hosts eliana and i have been one
2: of your other hosts chloe thanks guys thank you